This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Well, the idea of employee-owned or employee-shared companies, it's not something new, but it is a concept that isn't for every firm, yet the pandemic may be having some firms thinking about it as an option. In fact, there's actually been a 30% rise in employee-owned companies from 2020 to 2021 in the U.K., One of the companies here in the U.S., which is employee-owned, is Harpoon Brewery, based in New England with breweries in Boston and in Windsor, Vermont. Dan Canary is co-founder and CEO of Harpoon Brewing and joins us right now. Dan, a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for a few moments. Oh, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. Let me start with with this idea of your company being employee-owned. How did it originally come about? What was the thought process behind it? Yeah, no, great question. It was about... Seven or eight years ago, I had started the company with a, a, a business partner, and we both, you know, in our low 50s at that point saying, gee, maybe it's time to be thinking about some kind of a transition or, or transaction. And my partner said, you know what, I would really like that. So we said, let's take a hard look at it. And he went down the route of private equity or selling to a large brewery. And I, and I said, you know what, that does not sit right with me. Let me explore employee ownership. So I dove into the ESOP world, employee stock ownership plans and found a very welcoming community of both companies that were ESOPs as well as like associations across ESOP Association, National Center for Employee Ownership, found out a bunch of information. I pursued that route. We ended up going back to our, our board, um, even though the two of us controlled 90% of the company, and, and said, let's make the case. I made it for employee ownership. He made it to sell, and the board and the four other inside investors sided with me, and we went the ESOP route. So when you're when you're going through that process, what are the – the intricacies of of setting that up so you have a kind of a seamless operation because you don't want the company to be impacted as you're setting that process up. Yeah, and, you know, the ESOP, when the legislation was written in the 70s, there was a great deal of thought that went into kind of exactly that. It's like, hey, these companies are in competitive environments. We can't, you know, distract them from being successful in the marketplace. So what can we do to make setting up and running an ESOP kind of consistent with that competitive spirit. And they did it. And so, yeah, there was a lot of work, CFO, myself, our lawyers, et cetera. But the company kind of kept running. And we've always had a great culture at Harpoon. We, I think yeah. we had an ownership culture going way back. This just really deepened it and broadened it, if you will. So, yeah, we scrambled and got it done. In the ESOP world, I would say, and I was also chairman of the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, the largest employer group in Massachusetts. So I, I know a lot of business owners. And there are a lot of misconceptions out there about ESOPs and employee ownership. So the thing we did, which I would advise anyone to do, is get in touch with the ESOP Association. A lot of states have employee ownership centers. Find out what, how to do this because they can be very complicated to set up. Despite what I just said about running them being relatively straightforward, you, you want to get your questions answered accurately in setting them up because they can be complicated in setting them up. So then- then, then let me add in this question from the employee perspective. If you're an employee of a company and your firm is thinking about going ESOP, what are the things that maybe the employees need to be aware of as that process is moving along? Well, what, what is an ESOP? Start there. Like, what does that mean? Hey, is this a st- like stock options or is this me just getting stock or is it like a 401k? What is it? ESOPs are part of ERISA, the retirement plan the federal government set up in the, in the 70s. So, they are retirement plans. So the money, it's not like, hey, in, it's not, in most cases, I've got this ESOP account, I can go buy a boat next year. No, the yeah. way they're written, they're typically paid out 
either five years after you leave a company or in the, many cases, not until you hit retirement age. That's when we have to start paying it out or disability. Sure. So, again, it's a long-term savings account. But as I said to our employees, like, you know, you have a bunch of different buckets in life, right? You have housing, health care, education, and so on, yeah. and then you have retirement. This is your retirement bucket, and the, and the numbers show it. I think the average ESOP participant has like two and a half times the retirement savings of yep. the typical American worker. So it's a real benefit. Like the versus a 401k, typically your ESOP contributions are a multiple of what the value on an annual basis is of the 401k contribution. Well, and, and looking at the website, and it, it seems like that that, that was – it was obviously your mindset to go the ESOP route, but it does seem like – while it is a company, while you are, you know, looking for bottom line success, that there is kind of a culture that that ESOP was the way that was probably best for Harpoon to look. Well, you know, I my dad was a, a financial advisor broker for years, and so we talked business a lot growing up. I'm a huge fan of our free enterprise system, but I'm not a huge fan of greed. And I think in a country like ours, it can do a lot of damage to people's perception of like, what is capitalism? What's it all about? What is business about when it just looks like, hey, it's only going to the few, the financial, the private equity firms or the CEOs making 300 times the average worker. So there is a sense of mission at our company, I think, to prove that, you know, independent employee ownership can work and you can set up a company that can be successful, but can really reward everybody and not just the few. So yeah, you, you, you read that right. I think we do have a sense that we have something to prove. I got to tell you, I'm really, you know, we were one of the first craft breweries in the country. We've been around over 35 years. We have brewing license 001 from Massachusetts. It surprised and disappointed and frustrated me that so few craft breweries have gone this route right. because there's all this camaraderie and talk about community, et cetera. And then you've just sure. seen so many just sell out as opposed to kind of doubling down and, and, and taking a more holistic approach, if you will, because we're a very local business here in New England. We, we do a lot with charities. We're deeply involved in the community, and employee ownership is just kind of an outgrowth of that. So let me play off of that and, and ask you what you think the state of the craft brewing industry is right now, because you said it, it has soared. And I, I can you know think probably over the last two decades how much it has grown. And then you go to your local grocery store and you see how many different you know, brewers are, are in grocery stores selling their, their IPAs and their, their stouts and stuff. And, and it's just amazing to see how this has just kind of broken out into so many different uh, avenues yeah. over the last couple of decades. Well, when we started, Dan, there are about 100 across the entire country. Now it's over 9,000. So <laughs> numbers kind of yeah. tell the story. Now, the great part of that is the U.S. We started the company because we were frustrated beer drinkers. The U.S. was a joke as far as beer that was offered in the 70s and early 80s. Now it's by far and away the best place in the world to be a beer drinker or consumer. So that's awesome. Right. It's almost like if you look at the wine industry, like I think there are 7,000 vineyards in the country, and you kind of, as a consumer, go in into the wine aisle, and it can be intimidating. It's like all these labels. How do I know whether a Zinfandel is better than a Merlot, this or that? And I think the beer aisle has gone that direction. And so for consumers, it's like, gee, how do you understand what a lot of this stuff means? And I don't know what's going to happen with that. I think at some point there'll be kind of a return where branding will start to make a little bit more sense for people. They say, okay, I don't have 20 minutes to spend in front of the beer cooler. I just want a six-pack or four-pack. Yeah. And I trust this brewery, so I'm going to grab their IPA or I'm going to grab their porter or whatever the beer is that you're looking for. What's, the, what's it been like during the last 20 months during the pandemic uh, for, your, for your business? 
Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. We had about we lost about 35% of our revenue overnight. You know, that's where we were with our on-premise business, meaning what we sell to bars and restaurants. And then we have our significant retail operations, one in Boston and the seaport, another one up here in Vermont. And those closed overnight. So it was a real kick to the gut. And we were still a leveraged company from completing the ESOP transaction. So we've had our challenges. And i got to tell you, having an employee ownership culture helped us get through this thing, face it, um, in, in a lot of different ways. And the federal government stepped up with the PPP, the ERC, and yeah. helped out. And, uh, yeah, we just kind of pulled together and, and are kind of coming out the other side now. Does the, does the ESOP make it easier for you to want to do community-based programming when you think about, you know, breast cancer awareness, Hispanic heritage, uh, you know, and, and then also kind of the, the the fun side of marketing with the different promotions and partnerships that you might run? 100%. You know, we've always kind of taken our lead on charitable from our employees. It's like, hey, what matters to you? Or, hey, so so-and-so lost a, a, a parent to this disease. Can we find out about that? And so it has. It's just kind of brought that to another level. We do a ton of different stuff. We've had, you know, focus and I'd like, you know, we've raised over two million for ALS research. We've done a ton of brain tumor research. We've done a lot with animals, environmental. You know, we just do a lot, and it really comes because our employees want to do it, and they'll volunteer yeah. for events. We had a a Dogtoberfest the day after <laughs> we had fifteen thousand people for our regular Oktoberfest at Brewery in Boston. We had two thousand people and a thousand dogs. Supporting both brain tumor research and the Mass Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So, I mean, and that all came from an employee's idea, like, hey, wouldn't this be fun? And we can support a couple of great causes. So, yeah, the ESOP is central to all that. And I understand that also uh, diversity and inclusion is very much a, uh, a focus for Harpoon. It is. And, you know, we were on this, we formed our, you know, diversity inclusion committee, you know, several years ago. I, I formed one of the Associated Industries of Massachusetts. We took a lead at the Mass Brewers Guild and with the Hop Forward Equality effort. We are, and I've been saying this for years, you know, we're a overwhelmingly white male industry. You'd go to a brewers conference and there'd be 12,000 people there and 11,500 would be white dudes with beards and flannel. I mean, that's just kind of what the industry was. So we have a lot of work to do to increase diversity in our industry. And I I think it's always more powerful when it can come from within, recognize like we've got an issue here, Let's let's get after it. And not get after it by kind of sitting passively, but like we, we go back and we look at our applicants for jobs, and they're not nearly as representative of the communities in which we operate as they should be. Yeah. So how do we change that? We've hosted career fairs. We've done outreach to various community organizations and other parts of the area that would help to bring craft brewing in front of people. Because, again, in our business, one of the things I love about our business is it is, you know, we have a raw material coming in the front door, and we – put a finished consumer product out the back door, and we have retail. So we have all kinds of different jobs that require all different levels of experience or very little experience, which in this day and age when so many of our cities have become kind of really white-collar, it's nice to be able to offer those opportunities to people. So I think we have a good story to tell. We just need to tell it more. So let me ask you this, then, obviously with the the scope of what we've seen with the, the, the labor force over the last several months, Give me your thoughts on trying to build up, you know, this industry and those opportunities and have people thinking about a career in the brewery industry, uh, you know, as an opportunity, as maybe something that they wouldn't have thought of before. Well, you know, we when we started in Boston 35 years ago on the edge of South Boston, which was a blue collar neighborhood, 
you know, the city had made a real effort at that point to kind of promote our, our, the area. We're the Marine Industrial Park. It was water dependent. It was a lot of fishing. But I said, hey, guys, our product's 95% water. I think we qualify. Sure. And um, to keep blue-collar jobs in the city. It's like the only option for people who don't go to college is, you know, to become a hotel doorman or doorwoman or whatever. It's like, no, let's kind of have a career track for someone to become a brewer or a packaging operator or a delivery driver, that kind of thing. So we need to get out and tell that story so that, again, cities are gentrifying and people don't think there's opportunity in the city for with blue-collar jobs, for example. I'm just focusing on that because that's something that we offer that, you know, a lot of the white-collar firms don't. Yeah. And it, we just haven't done the job of getting out into the high schools and the community colleges and the neighborhood associations and saying, we're here, we're hiring, here's where we are in the public trans- transport system, and we've got a good story to tell. And, and have you meet people who've been here 10, 20, and 25 years and see what kind of lives they've been able to build for themselves and their families. Dan, pleasure to have you with us for a few moments. All the best to, to you and Harpoon, and uh, we will stay in touch. Thanks very much. Thank you. Next time, let's have a, over a pint. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I get to New England every summer. I'll give you a call. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. You got it. Dan Canary, who is co-founder and CEO of Harpoon Brewing. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.